The rest of you can turn about with the Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We are concluding working our way through Ephesians, and uh, you always feel a little inadequate in a sense because you um, are bringing together a lot of things of Scripture, bringing these truths together, and hopefully uh, doing it well so that it's understandable and usable. And yet, at the same time, I realize that this is all of God's grace to begin with anyway. And so as we get into it, we're just going to dive in and see that, that we stand in grace is, is what he's talking about in putting your armor on so that you continue to stand in grace and don't retreat or flee to some other source of strength. Where you stand determines both the rules you live by as well as the power you have. We, we mark where we stand with borders, right? Different borders come into play, and, and they, if you cross over a border or you do something different, then you're standing somewhere else, right? There was, it's not just a problem for today's world. It was a problem even back before the United States existed, and frankly from antiquity, but uh, between 1632 and 1681, three different kings, Charles I, Charles II, and James II, issued three conflicting land grants to Cecil Calvert, who was the second Lord Baltimore, and William Penn, giving them land grants in the New World, right? So you got, right, you understand the scenario, right? Like Britain, uh, in a sense, owns the section that we would call the United States today, right? And the king is basically saying, probably, if you give me money and support, you get this land. But over three different kings, they had given conflicting, conflicting land grants. So drawing a, a consolidated border was near impossible, and they kept getting into arguments about what the line was, and it involved things like arcs and tangents and even bisecting a peninsula, and the border conflicts grew so steadily worse until King George III demanded in 1760 that the parties resolve the dispute, right? Like, you guys got to solve this. So the Penn and Calvert families, because now it's the, the men that received the land grants had died already, hired two expert British astronomer surveyors, is the term they used, astronomer surveyors. It would take them six months and was only possible due to cutting-edge equipment. It involved a new methodology where they would, instead of like just sighting off the land, they would actually sight off the stars to pinpoint their location. And so they'd have to sometimes sit in tents in pounding rain until they got the, the perfect mark. They cut a 30-foot, 30 30-foot, 30 not very wide, right? But a 30-foot wide swath, the entire 233 miles that they had to cut through the wilderness. They left about 300 stone markers along their surveyed lines. On one side would be a P for pen, and on the other side would be an M because the Calvert family named their land Maryland. All right, of course, where we get the state of Maryland from. So you had these P and M markers, and every fifth mile, a large crown stone was placed with the Penn family of coat of arms on one side and the, the Calvert family of arms on the other. And so basically, they drew this line through the wilderness, right? <laughs> this is your land. This is my land. The surveyors were known, were, were Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. And the border would become known as the Mason-Dixon line. It's been, a, it was a technical achievement similar to probably the moon landings from the amount of difficulty never been done before. And even though uh, we can resurvey it with steadily improved equipment like GPSs and satellites, that border still remains the same. That line became known, it became more of a symbol because what happened was, was that Maryland allowed slaves, and Pennsylvania did not. And so over time in the United States, south of the Mason-Dixon line, 
became known as, well, you're in a different set of rules down here. We treat people differently down here, right? That slavery is possible down here. And north of the Mason-Dixon line became, again, a different set of rules up here. And that border, even though it was, became, it, it only went certain far, it, it, it metaphorically extended all the way through the United States in a certain way to say there are certain rules that you have to live by. As we get into Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about standing. And the question is, where are we standing? Where, where do we stand when we're wrestling against the devil? What are we fighting against? What are we trying to do? And to an extent here in Ephesians chapter 6, he's not saying how to fight the flesh or how to fight the world or how to be wise and not foolish or how to fight off legalism, all of which are related to the struggle but not the struggle. You see, because the, the, here in Ephesians, Paul is dealing with where do we stand? Where do we really stand? What rules do we live by? What, what truths do we cling to? And what he has been saying all the way through Ephesians is that we stand in grace. That this space of, of, that we've been trying to, to carve out and to say, this is where we need to live. This is how we need to, 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 to operate. These are the rules we need to live by. He's been arguing and saying all along, we, we need to operate in this space for grace. The space of grace. And now he's saying at the end of the book, he's saying, stand. <laughs> the devil wants you to move, move off of this position, off of this territory, won by your Savior, Jesus Christ. He has, he has won this victory. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He's conquered the devil. And he has created a kingdom for himself, a kingdom of grace. And the question is, will we stand in that grace or will we run to something else? Because the, the, the subtext to the whole book has been shame and the fear of failure. The fear of, well, what do other people say or what does God say of me or, or how do I know that he loves me? And armor, in this sense, is designed to say, to protect you from that shame, to say this, is, this, this can operate in order for you to stand in grace, to walk in grace, to live in grace, to never move from grace. A question you could ask yourself is, where are you afraid of being a failure? Where are you afraid, afraid of being ashamed and defeated? I know for myself, Especially um, when I first became a pastor, I, just background on me, I, 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 I didn't get a pastoral degree, I didn't study to be a pastor, I studied to be a missionary, I had a missions degree, and uh, so there are certain things that, frankly, we never covered in college or seminary, just because I was like, well, I don't need that class because I'm not going to do that. One of those was funerals, and, uh, and then within a few months of becoming a pastor, thanks, within a few months of being a pastor, uh, I had my first funeral. And then my second funeral, my third, you know, and, and you're, you're, you feel inadequate in those situations. You don't know what to say. You don't know uh, how, how to operate necessarily. And uh, no one had ever told me this is what you do at a funeral <laughs> or this is how you interact or this is what you need to accomplish. And I, I would feel inadequate. I would feel vulnerable. I would feel like, you know what, uh, I'm not doing what I need to do here. Any parent who's been a parent of young children feels the same thing when in the middle of a store, the child starts to scream, but I want that, I want that candy, you know, right? And the parent just wants to sink into the floor and disappear, right? A uh, funny story in our family that we tell fairly often is uh, uh, we were at, Amy was at the doctor and, and, she, and uh, Zeke was getting some shots for, I don't know, probably, I, I 
for one, before school year, so it was like one, before one grade, he had to get some shots taken, and, and uh, after the shots were, were given to him, uh, you know, they, they want to console the child, right, and so they gave him uh, a sucker, you know, for, for getting, for being so brave with the shots, you understand how this works, and um, Judson saw all of that, and uh, didn't, uh, was, was like, well, I want a sucker too. And well, and my Amy was like, well, you didn't get shot, so you, the, the sucker's not going to come for you. And, and so he started to scream, I want a shot. <laughs> he screamed it all the way out of the doctor's office, all the way over to Hy-Vee next door, all the way through Hy-Vee and out to the car, right? All because he didn't understand. Like, like everybody else, like, as a parent, you're mostly laughing, right? I mean, this, this is not like sinking to the floor. It's like you're walking around the store and the child is yelling, screaming, I, I want a shot. And they're like, people be like, what in the world is wrong with that kid? Right? <laughs> like, like, how do you, but, but that's, that's the way we, you know, that's sometimes this is the way we operate, right? We, we, we don't even know what we want. As, as a parent too, right? When you, get to be, when you get to be parents of teenagers, you get, you have more triggers uh, for failure, shall we speak, right? Because you realize that there's a lot more freedoms they have. You, you feel more vulnerable and more potential for, for, your, for, all, for your own sense of failure because you're getting to the end of this journey that's called the 18-year experience, so to speak. And uh, even though you're a parent for life, you, you think, well, uh, by 18 years, it's going to tell me where I, whether I've succeeded or I've failed. And, and, you, and you get... So things come at you because they're making new decisions, they have new freedoms, and, and you feel this sense of, oh, I have the threat of failure. <laughs> this shame raises its ugly head, so to speak. And, and then what happens is too often we speak out of that, that sense of, well, I've got to protect myself from failure. I've got to protect myself from shame. And, and often it's, it comes out something like, well, you're never going to do that. You know what I mean? And, and this whole thing that we, we looked at this last week, this, this whole, the armor is, is there partially so that we can speak the truth in love to one another, that we can operate out of this space for grace and not stand in shame and speak from shame and speak from, from, our, from our fears, but speak from grace. To speak the truth in love to one another, to, 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 to guide our responses to one another in such a way that we speak from that position, and not from our fear of failure, or our own sense of inadequacy. Remember, he is talking to the Ephesians here, and one of the biggest stories in scripture is where the Ephesians, losing their sense of identity, losing their, in a sense, being afraid of their failure as a city, because Diana was not being worshipped by more and more Ephesians, and more and more Ephesians were starting to, to, to move to this Jesus figure and to worship him and to follow him and so they started a riot and gathered a city assembly and yelled for hours great is the Diana of the Ephesians right again because of their potential for shame their fear of failure can you imagine being a Christian after that riot <laughs> and potentially your own desire not to say who you followed and and yet, Paul is writing not just about that. He's, he's writing because he understands that they, they, they used to operate under this, this system of shame where I don't know what God wants for me, and the only way I can know is if I pay enough money in, if I do enough things to manipulate God to being on my side for a little while. And Paul here is saying, no, Christ has won us a place of grace. He has conquered sin and death. He has welcomed us into his family. And so he starts in Ephesians chapter 1 with six truths of who we are in Christ. And he ends with Ephesians chapter 6 with six pieces of armor that help us to stand in the grace that we have received. And while they're not exactly correlative, that is, you don't just take one and go to the other. I, I do want you to kind of think back to Ephesians chapter 1. 
I want you to remember, again, the blessings that we received and his emphasis on grace. So I'm going to read, starting in Ephesians chapter 1, and then skip to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In whom you also, when you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So here are six eternal blessings that we have received in Christ. If we are his and we have placed our faith in him that Caitlin talked about this morning. The first one is that we are chosen from the foundation of the world. God wanted us to be his. The second is that we are adopted. We are predestined to adoption, to be part of God's family. The third is that we are redeemed. That that. The evil even in our lives and through our lives is conquered and redeemed and brought back ultimately to God's purposes. The fourth is that that we understand what the purpose of history is, that our lives, that the world's history is pointing to Christ and will be summed up ultimately in him and his rule forever. The fifth is that we have an inheritance, as Peter puts it, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. And the sixth is that we are sealed with the Spirit. And I don't think it's a mistake that, again, he ends the blessings and he ends the armor both with a reference to the Spirit. But we are sealed with the Spirit, marked as God's possession and his for eternity because you cannot split up the Trinity. So let's look at the armor of God, starting in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. So here we have six pieces of armor that Paul wants us to put on. Truth, righteousness, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. And he wants us to stand in grace. He wants us to stand here in this grace that Christ has won for us, to not move away from it, 
to realize that the devil is seeking to move us away from it. He's seeking to use shame and that fear of failure in our lives to move us away from grace, away from standing in that grace, and move us to some other platform. In some, in some ways, he does not care when we stand for righteousness, when we stand for justice, and we, we, we say, I'm going to fight for the truth. If we're standing, fighting for that truth in a place other than grace, he doesn't care, in a sense. Because he wants us, because grace is the power we need to keep standing, and grace is what we need to walk with God and know his grace in our lives. So the big idea this morning is we can stand in the grace God has provided and speak from that grace as we pray thankfully and trustingly to the God who has given us grace. So again, prayer, in a sense, is a, is a way that we put on this armor, and we're going to talk about how we pray through this passage. But my, my hope, my goal this morning is that, that we as a church, if we're not there already, that we become a place of grace where we stand in grace and we speak grace to one another, that we speak the truth in love to one another, where, that we provide that safety and love that comes not because everybody performs up to spec, but because we all share in the grace that God has provided. So let's look at how we stand in grace this morning. First of all, I'm going to, first point number one is we stand trusting what we possess. And how I'm doing this, how I'm kind of exegeting the passages is he, he uses two words to put, talk about the armor. He says, put on and take up. And there's two metaphors in a sense that he's, he's talking about. To put on is to say, this is what I possess. This is who I am now. This is what I have. And then, and then he says to take up, which is to, to, to receive, to, to, to say, this is not something that's mine, but it's something I can use. And so he says, take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and the, and the, and the, the Word of God, right? Salvation, helmet of salvation. Because, so he's saying, in some ways, this is who you are, and this is what you need to believe you are in Christ, and this is what God is doing in the world. And both of those are important to walking in Christ. You have to know who you are, and you have to know who God is and what he's doing. And so we're going to look, first of all, at standing by trusting what you possess. Trusting what you possess. Notice again what he says. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Why do we need to stand, first of all? Because shame wants to say to us, as opposed to the fact that we're chosen, that we're adopted, that we're redeemed, that we know the point of history in Christ, that we have an inheritance that's secure for us, and that we, have, that we are securely the possession of of God in the Holy Spirit. Shame wants to tell us, you'll never be chosen. You'll never be wanted. You're never going to be loved and cared for the way you wish you would be. Shame says, you're never going to make up for your mistakes. Shame says, you never know what's gonna ha going, going on, really. You, you never figure it out. Your shame says, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to know how things are fully going to work out. Shame also says, you, you don't have a future that's worth working toward. And shame says, do you really know who you are? You can take all the six blessings from Ephesians chapter 1 and, and say the opposite of them, and that's what shame tries to tell us over and over and over again. And this is the message of the devil, in a sense. He's trying to sell us, you know, you, you remember, I, I still do this with my soccer girls sometimes. You know, like, okay, let the two girls pick teams, and the girls are, you know, picking teams, right? And you can tell a certain level of anxiety. Am I going to get picked last? Like, am I not that important to the team? And shame wants to tell us that. Like, okay, yeah, your boss doesn't think you're that important. <laughs> your, your spouse or your kids don't think you're that important. You, you, you don't, why are you even on this planet, right? 
that's, that's a message of shame to us, trying to, to get us to believe that, that, we, that we don't need to stand in grace. We need to find some other platform to stand on. And, and usually it's trying to get us to stand on our, some platform of our performance. Like, you need to prove that you're, that you're, you're worthy to be chosen. <laughs> like, like, score the most goals, right? Because then you're worthy. <laughs> or stop the most, sh- block the most shots because then you're worthy. And it tries to move you away from grace to some other platform of performance or some, something else that says this, you can, you can secure your own worth, your own sense of happiness, your own security. Shame says you're never going to make up for your mistakes and so you better try harder or just give up. Why try? And so he wants us to get us out of the space of grace, into the space of shame, in order that we could then act and speak out of that space. When, when we're in the space of shame and someone challenges us and we're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you down. Like, you don't score as much goals as I do, right? Or nobody would choose you for the team. Or, man, I'm never going to forgive you for what you did to me. Because no one can make up for that mistake. We speak out of that space, of the space of shame, the space of I've got to prove myself and I've got to prove, I've got to make myself secure. And Paul is saying here, we have received this grace and we stand in this grace and we need to speak from this grace. Not running away from our mistakes or others' mistakes, not lashing out when people threaten us. Not quitting on our future when it doesn't seem worth it, when we can't control it. Never knowing who we are unless we can get everything we want or feel. That's the difference between shame and grace. And Paul here is saying that we stand in grace, first of all, by believing that we have truth. And you say, what, what is he saying by truth? Is he saying we have objective truth? Is he saying, we, saying we, we speak the truth? And I think the answer is yes, in a sense. But it, but it has to do with the fact that we, that we have truth. We understand that there is objective truth. I, I realize that, that there's two challenges in the world today, kind of, and how you hear this. That if you're a little older, you, you, you grew up in a, what we could consider a modern world where everyone was trying to get to certainty. Let's, let's prove everything. Let's get to certainty. If you're a little younger, you grew up in a, what they call a postmodern world where no one believes that there's any truth anyway. And so why try to find truth? <laughs> Just make your own truth. And, and in this place, Paul is saying to us, as the Holy Spirit is saying to us, we have truth. It's, it's, we don't need to worry about certainty because we have the truth, in a sense. And, but at the same time, if you believe there is no truth, no, there is truth that you can stand on, that you can build your life on, that is worth following and living and believing in. It's not just power plays, because God keeps his promises to us. He, it, it's, it's his world, he keeps his promises to us, and that is the truth that we rely on. That is the truth we live, that is the truth that we can stand on. When the devil says, well, do you, right, Genesis chapter 3, did God really say, you know? And we can say, yes, this is what he said. You know, the devil was so subtle in Genesis chapter 3. He implied two things. He implied that God wasn't giving them everything that they needed, (laughs) that his grace was not enough. And he also implied that they could get more, and they could be more, and they could be more sufficient on their own without God. Both of those apply to grace. God's grace has given us enough. And also, God's grace is with us even when we feel like we're not enough. He, he is with us. He, he created us in order that we can have this relationship so that we can know that we're not enough, but he is. And so we have this truth that we can live and speak out of. Grace provides truth not based on our performances, but based on who God is. This is who he is. He the more you learn about God, the more you realize his, he makes promises and he keeps them to show who he is. 
This is the God we worship, the God we serve, the God who gives grace. Because he's the God who gives promises. And so, uncertainty is not a place of shame, but a reminder of grace. When the devil wants to say, well, did God really say that? Or, is this really going to work? Or, how do you know? You can say, I might not know everything, but I know God loves me. I know I've got his word. I know I can stand in his grace. He also says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, you can ask the question, are we talking about the righteousness God provides to us in Christ? Or the righteousness where we desire to do good in situations? And again, I would say the answer overall is yes. It's about the fact that we have grace provides the space for us to receive the righteousness and to do out of that righteousness. His plan will unfold I was listening to a podcast this week, and the guy made this, this point, right? He, he, God's plan will unfold. That, that means that it's not fully done yet, right? We're, we're all about timing, right? Like, we want things to get done in a hurry. We want the grass to grow in a hurry, and then we can mow it in a hurry. <laughs> we want the, the seasons to, the, the, the leaves to change, so then we can, in a hurry, rake them up when they fall from the trees. We're, we're, we're too often in a hurry. And what, what, when we receive God's righteousness, we realize we can rest in his righteousness. We can do good, but we can also realize that, uh, that I'm limited, that, that I, I, don't have, I don't have to just always be trying to be more than I am. Again, shame wants to say you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. Enough, enough for your husband, enough, enough for your kids, enough, enough for your work, workplace, you're not enough here. And grace comes in and says, who cares? <laughs> God is with me. He is for me. And those reminders that I'm not enough just move me into a place where I can rest in him because I've received the righteousness of Christ. You realize what receiving righteousness means, right? Is you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You can live out of what God has done for you. I joke with Dave Hyman, we, we've taken the teens on various trips, and of course the teens are, especially the teen boys, were all about like how fast can you hike and how far you can hike and how much you can handle. And I turned to Dave, I've turned to Dave multiple times and be like, ah, I don't have to prove that anymore partially because I couldn't prove it anymore, but partially because I realized I don't, I don't have to live based on that type of, I've got to prove myself. I can live out of the righteousness of Christ. I can live within the limitations that I have in my life. It's, it's okay that I can't run a six-minute mile anymore. I wish I could, but it's okay because I live in grace now. I, I, I walk in grace now. And, and that allows me to stand in grace when the devil comes at me and says, you're not enough, you better prove yourself, you better do something here that is beyond your ability. I can step back from that and be like, no, I stand in grace. And I know I can do this, and I know I'm not in charge of that. And I'm going to live in this grace. I'm going to ex- enjoy the limitations of being like, sorry, Satan, I don't have to do that. It's not my job. I can live in grace. And let God take care of the rest. This is, this is who I am. This is what I possess now. I possess truth. I possess righteousness. They're both mine. And I possess, he says, a readiness that's out of the gospel of peace. Now this overall could mean, it could mean that you're ready to share the gospel. But typically that metaphor means that you're ready to go somewhere, not to stand somewhere. I think instead that the readiness here that's talked about, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, given by the gospel of peace, as it were, is not so much a readiness to share the gospel as a, much, as a readiness to, to meet what happens with grace. Because we have a gospel of peace that can handle every division. Like, like just a, a readiness that comes from saying, you know what, I, I don't have to be surprised at all the, the things that happen. Like, 
I have a friend who calls this being in the Christian bubble, if you were. And by that, he means that, that we're always trying to live as if life isn't messy. <laughs> that life doesn't, doesn't have, like, we just, we're not going to get into the messy parts of life. We're just going to all live like life is fairly sanitary and fairly controlled and it's okay. And Paul here is saying, a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace realizes God has brought peace. Not that I can provide peace in every situation or, or that, that every situation can get, get solved in this life, but that, that if I have peace, I know that peace can be accomplished, that God can bring peace to a situation, that he has brought Gentiles and Jews together and made them one new man in Christ. And if he can do that, then he can bring peace even in situations where I'm wondering how he can. And that makes me willing to just stand in grace and not try to flee to, well, I've got to solve this problem for somebody, or I've got to do this or do that. No, I can just stand here saying, okay, I'm ready for, okay, my kid's saying, I've got this problem, or I'm going this direction, and, and I'm not ready for that. No, you can be ready for that, because you've received grace, and you know that God can work peace. Not that everything is peaceful all of the time, but we have the gospel of peace that moves us toward peace and that we, it provides us with peace ultimately. As a Christian, I can meet new and different people and welcome them, not because I'm going to impress them with who I am or I'm so charismatic that they're just going to like me, but because God has given me peace myself and I can stand in that peace. You know, we live in a world where racism divides our world, which is south of the Mason-Dixon line. And we, we, and the world tries to solve it actually through shame, like shaming different people for histories. Like if you're white, they're just going to shame you for being white, you know. And if, uh, and just that that sense of shame that comes from from like let's just let's just all get in our corners here and not interact. And that's not God's plan. God's plan is to bring people from every tribe and tongue and people together, in grace, in recognizing His grace. And if you operate in shame, you're never going to speak the truth in love. Instead, you're going to be, you're going to either be apologizing for things you don't need to apologize for, or you're going to need to be attacking people that you don't need to attack. And instead, you can say, look, I've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. Let's talk about the, 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 the beauty of Christ using even our mistakes to bring peace to bring unity, to bring joy, to bring love. Let's, let's hear what's happened to you. I, I'm interested. Why? Because, because I'm, I'm, I'm ready to hear. I don't have to not hear something just because it would disturb my peace because I have peace <laughs> that can't be disturbed. And again, we put on these pieces of armor, this readiness, this truth, this righteousness, primarily through prayer. We're praying, thanking God for what he's given us in grace. We're saying, God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for the peace that you've provided. And thank you that these are mine, that this can be the the space that I operate out of and operate in. And and when you're praying those kinds of prayers on a regular basis, you're you're thinking correctly about how God has, where he's placed you and the grace that you have received. And if we never pray those kinds of prayers, then we're, we're getting off, so to speak. We're, we're getting too caught up in, 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 in asking, either asking God to perform or asking us to perform, rather than thanking God for what he has given us. So we need to stand trusting in what we possess, and we just need to stand believing in what God has done and will do. He says, take up the shield of faith, which which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Faith. As Hebrews 11 puts it, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when you take up faith, in some ways you're saying, I'm going to take up things that I can't see. (laughs) I'm going to believe in realities that I can't see. But one of the realities, especially as in suffering, that you can't see is that God is for you, that he loves you, 
And one of the key aspects, I think, that of what Paul is saying here is that God is for me. It's, it's Romans 8, right? If there's, no, there's now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, as Caitlin quoted earlier today. And he goes on and says, if we can believe that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? The question is, do you take that up when Satan comes at you and is like, well, you're going to fail here. God's not going to be able to use you. You're not going to be enough. And you take up the shield of, no, God is for me. He's not against me. God loves me. As Paul urged them to pray and to realize, to sink their truth, their roots, in a sense, down deep into the fact that God, that Christ especially loves them. Regardless of what I fear people think or what anxieties I have about the future, God is for me. God is still going to accomplish what he has promised. The fiery darts of shame that burn and would seek to destroy have no power if I know God is at work and he loves me and will be for me. Fear and shame's predictive power. That is, the shame always wants to predict the future. It's going to be bad. It's going to be worse. Things aren't going to go well. That predictive power is, is lies. They're just lies, false lies, rather than true prophecies. God's word is truth, and it is true prophecy. This is what God says about you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I love you. You are mine. You can stand here even when you don't know what's going on. Even when you're saying, I don't know what the future holds, you can stand knowing that God is for you because you stand in grace. You know, parents, this is especially important because, again, we can, we can operate out of a place of fear of shame. Like, I, I, I don't, I'm going to tell my kids to do certain things and to act a certain way because I, I think God... God God wants them to hear it, and God wants to, I want to help and live in God's grace because I don't want them to make me look bad. <laughs> or I don't want them to mess up and ruin their lives. You realize if they're Christ, they're redeemed, right? So God can redeem any mistakes they make. You, you don't have to prevent them from every mistake. Now you're giving them wisdom. I'm not saying don't, don't speak. I'm just saying you, you, you don't have to control them. And children, sometimes we, we can be afraid. Like, okay, my parents didn't give me this, or they didn't give me that, or, or I'm never going to have this in my life because my parents didn't do this for me. Again, you live in grace. God never designed your parents to give you everything in life. He designed himself to be there for you. So appreciate what your parents do give you. And remember, they weren't designed to give you everything, so rest in his grace. Rest in what he can provide for you. And you can speak out of that to one another. You can speak to your parents saying, thank you. <laughs> and maybe sometimes, and I wish you would have done this. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but speak it in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense of grace, in a great sense of mercy. Why? Because we're, we're, all, we're all walking together in God's grace. We're not, we're not seeking to control one another or ruin one another's lives because we realize that we, we stand in grace, we live in grace. This is, this is where God has put us in the midst of this broken world. He says also that we put on, we take up the helmet of salvation. That sense of, the, again, probably more future-focused, the fact that God will save me. When the devil wants to come at you and be like, there's no hope for you, the helmet of salvation says, no, God will save. My inheritance is secure. His work, while not complete, has effective and enduring power. My redemption is complete. I can stand in grace because even my mistakes are conquered by his salvation. Man, so, so often, right, we're, we're just tempted to flee. Our spouse comes at us, you failed here. And we're tempted to be like, no, I didn't fail. 
you have failed, you know, or, or tempted just to like run away and be like, oh, I'm just a terrible husband, I'm terrible, I just, I never do the right things. When we stand in grace, you can be like, oh, let me listen, well, how did I fail? Well, okay, I, man, I, I'm really sorry about that. I, I, I realize that I, even though I live in God's grace, I make mistakes and I, I want to I want to do what I can to make that up, but let's, let's talk that through. What, what does that look like? How can we operate? The helmet of salvation doesn't make me flee. I mean, it helps me not to flee, but instead helps me realize I can stand because the future is secure. I can work toward that and know that he is with me regardless. This goes to injustices as well, right? We, we look at our world and we say, I've got to fight injustice. And if God gives you opportunity, you should. But that doesn't mean that you, should, that you can conquer all injustices. It's, it's his world. He's the one ultimately who's going to save it. And he's going to show that he's the one who did. So the helmet of salvation partially is saying, again, God's in control. Even when I don't know how to solve this problem. I mean, it's very similar here, right, to Christ's temptation. Satan takes Jesus up to the, the pinnacle of the temple or the, uh, the mountain and says, look out and see all the kingdom of the world. And you can, basically, you can set all of this right if you just bow down to me and I'll give you the power. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'll wait for God. I'll look to God. I'll trust in God. And that applies in that sense to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? We, we've been given the grace of knowing His Word. We can, we can listen to this grace. We can walk in this grace. And the, the Spirit uses the Word to help me see, believe, and speak the truths that He wants me. Again, this goes back to Christ's temptation, right? And so just maybe a further study if you want to dive into this deeper. Take Christ's temptation in, in Matthew 5 or, or wherever, and compare it to the armor, not just the sword of the Spirit, because we oftentimes will say, look, Christ used the word of God to defeat Satan, and that's a, that's a good observation. But look at all of the armor, and how Christ, in a sense, used all of the armor in the temptation. It's, it's a fascinating study, which I don't have time to do, because I'm now out of time. But again, can you pray these things? Can you ask God for faith? Can you ask God for help you remember the word? Can you ask God to, 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 to use the word in your life to teach you and guide you so that we can speak out of this space of grace? We can stand in this grace and speak from it. I can, I can, I can speak to someone in, in peace and love. Why? Because I don't fear the future. I can speak with truth because I have the word to share. And I guess my, my question to you this morning is, will you embrace this grace that you have received? You have received truth and righteousness and readiness. You received faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Will you, will you use them to embrace the grace in which you stand, to, to, to remind yourself, to sing of God's mercies, to delight in the, the family of grace, the church, to submit to one another because of his grace. Because the devil is seeking to move you out of that space into shame. <laughs> or you feel like, he won't love me. I'm worthless. There's nothing I can do. No, we have received grace. And so will you, will you also remember that this is an ongoing wrestling match? Like you can't just say, well, I'm in grace, and devil flee, and it's over, right? This is an ongoing wrestling match. And so we talked about the, a rule of life or the space for grace. And, and again, there's a sign up there if you want to think about how to set up your life to put in rhythms and patterns of life to help you stand in grace rather than just m mitigate shame and run away from shame, but rather to stand in grace. Because we, this is an ongoing wrestling match, and having patterns and, 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 and habits in your life that help with that, rhythms to life, help you to stand in grace and to, to remind yourself of the grace that you have received. Hopefully this morning you've caught the point. <laughs> you can stand in grace. It's not based on your performance. 
It's not based on how you can control the future. It's based on what Jesus has done for you on the cross. He suffered so you could live. He rose again to provide that hope for the future. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you don't know the forgiveness and the peace and the love that comes from from trusting in that, then you need to trust in him. He is the place of grace. And he wants you to stand in him. Because you are chosen. You're redeemed. You're adopted. This is who you are. You know the point of history. It's going to be summed up in Christ. He wins. You have an inheritance that is reserved for you, undefiled and unfading, waiting for you in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is with you, using his word in your life. So will you stand here? When the devil says, you're worthless, will you stand here? When the devil says, oh, you can't, don't speak anything, don't say anything, because what you say doesn't matter. Will you stand here in grace? When the devil says, ah, how can God use you to do anything? Will you stand here in grace? Because he has won this place for us, and we can stand in grace. Heavenly Father. We thank you for grace. We thank you for the grace of knowing who we are in Christ, the inheritance that you have given to us, the hope that we have, the love that we have, the peace that we have. And so we know we have truth and righteousness and readiness because you are with us. And we can take up faith and salvation, and the word of God, and do positive things because we walk in grace. We stand in grace. Help us to notice when the devil attacks us and says, you're not enough. You better go do something else. You better run somewhere else. And help us to stand in grace. We thank you for it. In your son's name, amen.